Welcome to Writers' Festival Radio. My name is Sean Wilson. I'm the Artistic Director of the Ottawa International Writers' Festival. Thank you for listening and for donating. Your support allows us to continue to celebrate and spotlight great writing and important ideas. We're broadcasting from the unceded and unsurrendered territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabe. We recognize our obligation as settlers on this land to work to repair the harms perpetrated upon Indigenous communities and acknowledge the ongoing trauma colonialism has inflicted and continues to inflict on First Nations, Métis, and Indigenous peoples. Our host today is IT executive and poet Stephen Brockwell, who won the Archibald Lampman Award for Fruitfly Geographic. The Danforth Review said his collection, The Real Made Up, has, quote, no respect for comfort zones, a wonderful work of harsh unrealities, end quote. And Matrix Magazine says his, quote, unfettered curiosity and his sensitivity are commendable. It is rare to encounter a poet who is as interested in experimentation as in engaging with the tradition, end quote. Stephen's guest today is poet and professor Rob Winger. Here's how David O'Mara describes Rob's latest collection. How do we see? How do we know? Curious and unsatisfied, Rob Winger's new collection, It Doesn't Matter What We Meant, seems to hang in the interval between approach and grasp. A speed trap, a birch tree, comets, neighborhood restaurants, wind turbines, predictions for the future, all and more are scrutinized in the imaginative questioning lines of these restless conversational poems where observation is both steadied by a level eye and lifted with a lyric buoyancy. Here's Stephen Brockwell, welcoming Rob Winger back to the festival to introduce us to his new collection, It Doesn't Matter What We Meant. Welcome to the Ottawa International Writers Festival. I'm here with Rob Winger to talk about his book, It Doesn't Matter What We Meant. Uh, which I misread is what we want for some reason, uh, but I got it right after I uh, realized my mistake. And um, Rob is uh, really uh, someone I've known for a long time, uh, a really hardworking writer that has a central music that is quite unique to him, a voice that is um, resonant, deeply thoughtful, unafraid to be emotional, and um, unafraid to confront um, a lot of the challenges we're facing today, but without being uh, hortatory or bombastic with um, really a more inquiring, thoughtful uh, tone. And, um, you know, so it's maybe a sense of despair that I feel in, in this particular book. But he's the author of uh, three other books prior to this, um, one of which uh, was nominated for the Governor General's Award, that's Mirbridge's Horse. And um, that was a fantastic book uh, that we were just talking about. I remember the last word on the last line. And um, uh, Old Hat, which is also one of my favorites, and uh, One in Between. He's currently a professor at Trent University. And, um, you know, it's a really diverse guy, thinks about a lot of things in really creative ways. And in fact, I think um, his PhD was in a group that was actually sort of about integrated thinking that was poly, like multidisciplinary, if I'm not mistaken. And um, so he has that broad view. He pulls things in from everywhere and gets to really, really good places. So with that, let's get started on uh, talking to Rob. Hello. Oh. Hello. Thank you for that lovely, generous introduction, Stephen. Nice to see you and talk to you. Yeah. So... You know, the um, one of the things I wanted to talk about in the book was, um, you know, just the sort of maybe a change in the tone or the language that you've got and wondering if there's anything that is purposeful about that or if, um, you know, the kind of current climate has um, impacted the, sort of just the tone uh, of your voice and, and the sort of language you're using. Yeah, I, I'm thinking about that now. And uh I don't know if uh, if that's intentional uh, or or controlled <laughs> or uh, or sort of something that was uh, sort of deeply considered in in putting these things together. I, I mean, my guess is it's a function of being older. <laughs> right. and, uh, there's a gap of uh, I don't know seven or eight years between uh, the poems in Old Hat and the new ones in this one, um, and so I think it's a function of those things. Uh, 
but I would have to know exactly, I think, what you mean by a difference in, in, uh, in tone. Uh, it's also a funny thing, Stephen, I don't know about you, but I, I, I don't go back and read my old work. Um, and right. I, think, I think a lot of writers don't. So I think that that sort of perception might happen outside of, of my own way of working, um, uh-huh. if you know what I mean. No, no, I do. I think that's an interesting thought. You know, I do. And I do it for two reasons. One is to sort of um, make sure I'm not repeating myself because I think I have a tendency to do that. So I sort of like, did I did I do this already? You know, and um, the other is to sort of just um, sort of see what patterns are there, like if there's any thread or if there's anything kind of an undercurrent. But uh, I guess the change in tone I'm talking about is one where you know, the kind of, there's a, a more, I guess you could say a plaintive tone. I mean, it's evident in it. We live in a world that is saturated with so much change and so much growing awareness of, you know, privilege, which is something that comes up here. We just talked about that. There's one poem in there that deals with, um, you know, uh, man, uh, like the, the, the lineup um, poem. And um you know, I think it's just, you know, I know that in my current work, there's, and it's something I'm actually trying to get out of it, to be honest, in the new thing I'm trying to do, that sort of sense of um, a bit of bitterness, anger, frustration at the state of affairs, you know, and I, it, it, how can it not make it into your your writing? Um, but uh, I don't I don't know whether that resonates for you or or whether that, that, that's not it at all. You know, I mean, it, and yeah, I'm, I'm not I'm, I'm not yeah I'm not totally sure if that's it for sure either. Uh, but I will say that when I was writing this one and then editing it, um, the the thought of thinking through carefully the ways to best situate knowledge uh, as you know Donna uh, someone like Aaron. Aaron Walker would talk about it in interesting ways. Um, so the way to do that and to think through various privileges uh, that I've been able to ignore or overlook, um, and uh, especially as somebody who who teaches and as somebody who teaches creative writing to young people, yeah, uh, I've I've been aware for a long time now. I think of my sort of inherent authority and my position of power um, and the responsibility that I think should come with that. Um, right. So I, I think probably it's fair to say I've been thinking carefully, hopefully carefully about, about those issues and, uh, and the sort of social power I have as a person who is white and yeah. male and cisgender and straight, yeah. um, all the sort of boxes you check <laughs> off in late capitalism for being in an automatic position of privilege and easiness. Um, so, uh, and in this book I was thinking about and have been thinking about in my sort of, I guess, university career, I've also been thinking about class. Um, Mm. and so some of the pieces in the book come back to, and think about sort of, uh, you know, old personal history and take it as a sort of starting point, uh, for thinking about issues of class and things like inherited wealth, you know, um, like we weren't, when I was a kid, my family wasn't, I don't think poor, but we were certainly working class. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and blue collar and all that stuff. Uh, and it's something that, uh, I've found increasingly that, that people don't want to talk about very much. Um, especially if you're in a context where there's a lot of inherited wealth. Uh, and, and uh, so I have been thinking about that stuff. Um, and, uh, probably some of it has to do with having, having a kid and probably some yeah. of it has to do with being in a position where I'm, I'm hoping to help out young people at, who are in university classes. Um, so I think, I think it's fair to say that some of that is there. I don't know if that, that would uh, sort of demarcate or control the, the tone that you're thinking of. Um, and, 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 also, and also, as you mentioned, the sort of divisive politics of populism are of course there too. Yeah. So I've been, like everybody else, I think, I've been trying to think of helpful ways to steer through that, that remember that, that try to measure and think about human beings, if that doesn't sound too sort of grandiose, you know? Um, and then issues like, when do we, when do we not listen? When do we decide mm. that, that someone has crossed a moral line? Cause I think all of us have that sort of, uh, sort of moment or sort of, sort of, sort of, uh, 
predetermined morality where we say, no, I'm not, I'm not going to accept that thing, uh, which is the, in many ways, the opposite of empathy. So I've been trying to think about that sort of philosophically. So maybe some of that stuff's there. I mean, that's a big mess of an answer to it. Not really. No, no. I mean, it, it, it is very much, you know, kind of what I was thinking, although I really liked what you said and the way you said what you said about power and privilege, because that's a huge challenge for me for the same reasons. Right. And what I find interesting is you seem and, and you know, like it's an imperfect practice. Right. It's a daily habit for me of being right. Like it's not like I don't get to think about it, read, you know, uh, books about it and then sort of excuse my actions on a daily basis, right? It's actually the action that is the thing that matters. Um, and I just find it interesting that, you know, you are embracing that um, heartily without even kind of thinking of, um, with, you don't seem to have any nostalgia for the old times. Oh, no, I think know? that's, you know, <laughs> yeah. I remember, I remember reading a, many years ago, reading a, a really wonderful Kurt Vonnegut speech um, and, uh, he's talking about people who are talking about the good old days. Um, and he says, please tell, when I was a kid, people that were people of color were still lynched every day and this happened and that happened. And he says something like, uh, I'm going to ask a question and please, Mr. Reagan, when he's delivering the speech, don't answer. Those were the good old days. And I, I think that nostalgia for that time is really naive, uh, you know, and, uh, and dangerous, um, yeah delusional (laughs) so so, uh you know um but you're right i think uh the idea of situating what people are calling privilege now is ongoing and continual and never-ending so that's that's maybe that's one of the reasons i I cited there when you first asked the question i cited aaron wonker because when she talks about that in notes uh notes from a feminist killjoy she talks about how you situate your knowledge you figure it out you look around it you you learn a bit and then you do it all again and then you do it all again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, or other other conversations about various systemic privileges. Um, the idea that you can realize it and that's the end. Um, yeah. Often when I talk to people about that, and sometimes it's students, I say it's like saying to someone, "Oh, I I had a an aff- to your partner, your romantic partner. Oh, I had an affair with your friend, but now I told you the truth about it, so it's fine, <laughs> right?" Yeah. Right. You know, I think it's sort of equivalent to that sort of thing where you speak truth and think that's the end. Um, so, uh, yeah, I guess I've been thinking about those. I mean, I don't know if I, I think I've, I guess I've probably been thinking about them in my in my work. I've been thinking about them in my private life. Right. Um, in my professional life. Right. Well, it's interesting, too, you know, because I, I think, you know, not to set, go all zizic on everybody, but to, which is probably now no longer a fashionable thing to do. But the capitalist part of it is really is of interest to me. And I think it intersects everything. I was thinking about um, something recently because a a friend of mine is a painter and she's working on a painting project about geography. Right. And, you know, being a math person by training, I'm thinking about, you know, surfaces of the earth and, you know, inscribed, you know, interiors and exteriors. Right. And how our geography is all based on those boundaries. Um, that are fixed and inscribed and impermeable, right? And then also how that's also related to capital, about property boundaries and land, and how tightly capitalism is linked to even the way we do maps, right? That that is not the only way to do maps. There are impermeable boundaries in other cultures where there's land or spaces that are not even owned, (laughs) You know what I mean? They they are they are shared in some way, that, or they are transitory spaces, and we don't think about enough how our thinking is structured along fundamental principles like that to sort of unpack them continuously. It can be an exhausting process, yep. you know. But I find it so liberating that you have to do it all the time because you're perpetually learning as a result. You know, like you you never really have mastery over anything and that's amazing you know I, I i find it odd that other a lot of people don't find that thrilling and fascinating yeah yeah i agree and and i've uh 
I think this is this might be sort of adjacent to what you're saying, but I remember chatting with my partner, who's been my partner for a long time, uh, about how, you know, looking up at sort of a night sky, what I find really wonderful is that people don't know anything. <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, and uh, and and I've heard her describe say to me that when I talk about that, it sounds so despairing. And I don't, and I don't find it despairing. I find the, the, mm. the way that it makes you small, I find quite grounding. Um, if that makes sense. It uh, does. So I think that's related to what you're saying there, you know, and so obviously capitalism is bad news and all the things it encourages and that we've, that we've inherited this system as though it's good along with all the other bullshit of colonialism um, and all the other systemic privileges and, and, uh, and uh, nasty bits and pieces that make up our reality. I think it's important that we keep thinking about it. Right. And, and uh, as a sort of moral task, if that, if that makes sense. No, it does. And I think it is exactly that a moral task and a a daily one, you know, I mean, to, to just um, renew in, Action and silence sometimes, listening, you know, that, and that's one thing. Let's get to the poetry a little bit um, because section two, that's uh, one we can talk about with relation to what you just said, because there's a high degree of listening there, right? Like there's a, there's sort of English to English translations of poems that maybe you can introduce yourself and may, maybe you'd feel comfortable enough to even talk about one. For example, when, uh, when we were at that phase of, of the book where we were putting it together and sort of packaging it um, and uh, making sort of marketing copy copy for the book. Uh, some of the folks at uh, great folks at McClellan Stewart suggested that the book was about inherited masculinities. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think it is in part, uh, but I sort of resisted it because that's not what the whole book is about. So, and it would be an incomplete project or claim to say it, it is, but still there are bits and pieces about that. So part of that for those sort of translation poems uh, is about that and thinking through um, this idea of different perspectives. No, that doesn't sound right. This idea of thinking about how different types of people hear sort of ideas or proclamations um, and to think about a sort of listening from the point of view of a, of a sort of inherited male performance uh, in some ways that, that, that threads in with class. I mean, it was a difficult, it was a difficult sort of thing to do. And I ended up like not succeeding on a bunch of the ones I tried um, and getting rid of them. Uh, and, and this what's in the book is the ones that I think sort of had, had something that, that worked at least a little bit. So, but it's also a difficult proposition to decide that you're going to rewrite an Adrian Rich poem. Like, <laughs> you know, so it's, they're, they're not rewrites. They're, they're translations. They're a, they're a, an effort to sort of hear them. I think. Um, so, and, and other ones, like there's a famous Sylvia Plath poem in here. There's lots of old, um, fairy tale texts, uh, that are, I mean, when you read the original of these tales, they're not only like really shockingly violent, but horribly misogynistic. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, especially with this sort of, if you look at it with a contemporary sort of sensibility. So, uh, but for example, uh, one that I'm fairly pleased with is called a social history of tone deafness. Um, and that one is, uh, that one's a, a, a sort of translation of, a, of the first poem in Adrian Rich's book, Diving into the Wreck, which I really admire. Um, so, uh, so it starts, it says, out in this valley, we've sprayed for weeds. That's why we came here. Sometimes a single honeybee navigates the wilting marigolds, mirroring the sun's arc over glacial rivers. Here's what we depend on. Motown LP collections, movies on white comic heroes, bagels sold in the plateau, or Virginia Woolf novels included last minute on the syllabus, the last Lego brick that builds the tower tall for prisons. Coming to this valley, we wanted to confirm our capital, to suture these coal towns with silent silver prints that looked like here, but were imported wholesale from the city, purchased with salaries we think we've earned. So that's that's the opening of that. And if you look at... I have, I'm, I'm teaching this book this week to a first year creative writing class. Um, so Adrian Rich's wonderful poem that you can't improve upon uh, starts and it says, out in this desert, we are testing bombs. That's why we came here. Sometimes I feel an underground river forcing its way between deformed cliffs, an acute angle of understanding moving itself like a locus of the sun. 
into this condemned scenery, etc. So, so it's this sort of mm-hmm. attempt to sort of hear it and and rewrite and use it as a sort of sort of uh, text, I guess, some kind of thing like that. Mm-hmm. And most of them, most of those pieces, sort of, I moved through the poem in a sort of word for word or line for line way, and tried to sort of rehear them with whatever voice I was taking on. So the the section of that the poem in that section that's called Red Truck Treaty sort of is a re-listening to uh, a section of uh, Dion Brandt's book, Land to Light On, which I also really admire, about being up north and having a bunch of racist, misogynist jerks all around you. Um, and so I tried to write that poem from the point of view of the racist, misogynist jerk, uh, which was a really difficult proposition because I had it, I didn't want to be empathetic with that person, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and like so much in the in the in the editing and writing of the book, those sort of those sort of challenges were part of what I wanted to think about. Um, how do you do that? Is can you do that? What does it mean to do that, et cetera? Um, so, and when I and that one that piece in particular, uh, when I showed to people, I would always say, you know, uh, that's not me. <laughs> this voice is not me. <laughs> the, so, just to make it clear, you know. Um, but yeah, it was an interesting proposition to do that. I'm not totally sure if those poems succeed or or what they're doing. Um, and I feel like that about a lot of the book, you know? Um, so uh, they, they're, they're hypotheticals or sort of yep. uh, scientific hypotheses, I think. Right. You know, and I think you have to, you, you cannot, this is what I meant when I said earlier before we were uh, recording, openness and kind of like, you know, there's a degree of uncertainty that the reader is left to complete in this book. And I think more so substantially more so than in any of the previous work, you know? Um, And I think, you know, what you're saying is partly that's true of your own experience writing it, which is interesting, right? Because if you put yourself in a position to do these, it's, it's the, the basic concept is daunting because of who you're, you know, doing it in relation to and that part, the privileged aspects that we were talking about before. So that actually does help me better understand them because there were just things that eluded me um, that I think uh, are more evident now, but um, I, I thought they were beautiful. I mean, they're all beautiful. You know what I mean? There's a certain sort of sense and you're not afraid to do that from a writing point of view, like the words, the sounds, you have your own sort of sound. And I think that's really important. And I think um, it's interesting to see how it changes from poem to poem, but it's still there, you know, I, I, and I've always really enjoyed it. In particular, actually, there's another sort of longer poem that I really, really like called Escarpment. And um, that's another one that, uh, first of all, I want to know, is it the Niagara escarpment? Is it a different escarpment? Where is it? If, is it an actual place? And, um, you know, the sort of industrial elements in it, the sort of landscape elements, and, and that's actually a thread in more than one poem in the book, actually. That sense of um, of loss, you know, of vistas being blocked by things. Um, but the, the first poem in there, and the one that is my favorite, I think, other than the last poem in the book, uh, and there's list poems in here, of course, which is something that many of us do. But, you know, my basement is dirt packed, is limestone crumble. My basement is damp and dark, the chain swinging from its single bulb, impossible to locate. Like, that's definitely vintage winger for my ears, you know, rhythm and kind of kinetic energy that I just love, but maybe you can talk about that poem and, and what you were trying to, and, and also because what you're saying is what was interesting in the writing of it too. And, and what are the sort of background facts of that? Uh, well, first, thanks for all those lovely compliments um, uh, and, and such close, careful attention to so much of the book, Stephen. Um, so Escarpment is one of the last, the most recent poems, uh, mm-hmm. which is, and you'll note, uh, maybe, I mean, I bet you do, because you've read the book with such attention that uh, even sort of COVID-era lockdown appears in right. that. 
Um, so it, it was one of the ones that was written after the book had been, you know, accepted during editing. Um, so, uh, and there are a few of those here uh, where other poems would fall away. We'd cut, I don't know how many we cut, 12 or 15 poems, I think, from the text. And I put other ones in. Um, so this is one of the more recent ones. But you're right to say that uh, I think that it's one of the concerns there is the ways that climate change is affecting things, all the ways that industry and capital and greed and concerns for money are ruining and have always been ruining everything. Um, the escarpment, <laughs> the escarpment uh, is an interesting, was an interesting idea for me because it isn't a mountain, even though in Hamilton, they call it a mountain. Uh, the idea of an escarpment is this leftover sort of, uh, sort of uh, geological formation from this previous era it's it's got a cliffside, but it's not a huge cliffside. And I there was just something that that felt right about that to me. Uh, in the opening section of the poem, the escarpment is the is the Niagara escarpment, and when it says we've come cliffside to look at stuff, uh, a, a lot like lots of our our work does, like that that draws on experience. When when I was a kid, if you wanted to do something, you had to drive to the city. I grew up in a really small place, and the and this is the actual place where we would park the car and look out at the twinkling lights of downtown Hamilton, which at the time was like horrifically toxic and carcinogenic. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, uh, we would watch, we would look at the, you know, the, the gigantic flames above, you know, um, DeFasco or something or Stelco and, and think of them as gorgeous. Uh, and I, I love that tension that the horrible thing is beautiful. Um, that we're looking at and admiring naively. Like I was, I didn't know, I didn't know anything, you know? Uh, I remember that era when I was a kid, uh, we were getting the, the Hamilton Spectator one time. Uh, and, you know, I didn't read the newspaper. I didn't pay attention to much of, of, of anything when I was a child that way. But I remember seeing the, 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 a story on the front and they had a, a map of Hamilton Harbor. There's this big section uh, and uh, it was color coded and the section was like in dark ink. And the legend said, for the dark ink colored section does not support life. <laughs> and, uh, right. And, uh, and I thought that was so striking. So I'm thinking about some of, some of those things in that, in that section and the basement section from which you read, that's my childhood basement, the descriptors, of course, embellished and all that stuff, but there really were limestone walls that would crumble and that scary, you know, uh, light bulb hanging from the chain you can't find. And that particular basement had a dirt packed floor and, Sometimes there were snake skins down there and, and, uh, and, uh, you know, you think about some, some sort of just sort of some, some basic fears in human consciousness or some great thinker like Gaston Bachelard talks about in, uh, I think it's in the poetics of space. He talks about the basement being like Mm. the, the sort of human psychic subconscious, uh, where you're afraid of things, uh, and you don't go down to those places. And, and so that's about that too, you know? So, uh, and that somehow connects to me to the be- idea of being on a cliffside. You could mm. fall off and the idea of looking at the beautiful disaster, uh, all that sort of thing in front of you. And, and so the sequence does a lot of that, um, you know, uh, I, I hope, you know, um, and, uh, and so it mixes that sort of industry with what I guess we call the natural world. Um, so yeah, thank you for, thank you for saying that about the sequence. I'm glad it did something for you. Yeah, no, it it definitely did. So yeah, let's talk about that poem that um, I, I missed the obvious on lineup. Um, you know, and without necessarily uh, betraying what you had said to me, actually, just there's some beautiful. And this is a poem that for me has lighter tone to it, and um, you know, just a lot of funny stuff. Like, which is you know, there's not as much about it in this book as there is in some. Uh, in, in Old Hat, for example, you know, like just little, little jokes, you know, like um, if we hold your spandex contrail, I absolutely loved that line. It sort of fuses, you know, so many different things, like a bit of conspiracy theory stuff. And, you know, just I thought that was uh, spectacular, spectacular. But maybe maybe talk about lineup and maybe even read a little piece of it if, you, if you're up for it. Uh, okay, uh, so uh, lineup is this uh, sequence toward the end of the book uh, with, I guess, I'm looking now, it's got six sections. And they're, again, they're about this idea of inheriting sexisms, right? So all the little subsections are, are, uh, are like, 
are attached to with M dash is the word man. So Superman and last man, boogeyman, uh, mankind, man-made, which I still to my horror hear people saying as though they're grand words. Um, so the section you were referencing is uh, Superman, but it's called super. Uh, so I'll read the, I'll read that first. This is no green screen Canyon. It's real life fire, real time fighting. Each rib counts. We think all our biceps. If we hold your spandex contrail, a sample on the plate, we find there every missile. Remember, he's only at home, really, surrounded by skyscraper ice crystals. Is every one a mirror? That's that section. So it's it's a, sort of a take. It's sort of a take there on uh, the ways people perform maleness, and people have been taught to do that, which is a, a topic, of course, that's been talked about quite a lot. Um, so it, it was an interesting, another challenging section to get to try to get right. Uh, I'm still not absolutely sure that I have gotten it right, uh, but an, uh, it was a challenge to make me think about the ways I'm still performing some of this stuff um, and complicit with it and uh, uh, why it is I've allowed myself to be blind to it for so long and, and, and those sorts of concerns, you know? Yeah. Um, so, uh, so yeah, it was another, yeah, there are fun little jokes in it, but I think it's a pretty, uh, I think it's also a, a pretty a pretty dire and serious section too. I was trying to resist yeah. that anger. I was trying to resist that anger you were talking about. Mm-hmm. So, um, so, which I think I embraced a little bit more sarcastically in in some of my previous stuff, uh, like the, some of the poems in Old Hat, uh, which a friend of mine called the angry poems for a while. <laughs> so, so uh, yeah. So um, yeah, thank you for for noting that. Um, and you know, there are two poems that I really enjoyed the last two poems and I thought they were really beautiful, especially the last one, which we'll end with in the conversation, I think. Okay. Um, I just love the sound again of the ends of the earth and this notion of saying things, of quoting things, which you talk about in the notes at the back of it. And I'd really like to know more about that because I actually have a poem that I, where I've used that word baby in, in an interesting way as well. And um, I can't imagine saying baby, saying, as a matter of fact, saying anything on Spain's plain rain. <laughs> I, ju- I just thought that was, well, that's something, you know, like <laughs> what exactly am I hearing there? And um you know, the middleman is manifest. I, I, there was just a lot of wordplay in this one. And um, I'd like to know more about it. Okay. Um, so, yeah, the the saying of baby uh, <laughs> or the matter of fact or the sort of explanation of basic uh, facts, uh, I think that's probably influenced by you know, reading Rebecca Solnit or something like that. Um, she has this wonderful book called Men Explain Things to Me. Uh, and uh, there's the, I think it's that book where one of the opening sections, um, she's at a party and uh, and she's talking to some, you know, blowhard guy who's telling her about the very important book on My- Edward Mybridge that she ought to read. And her friend is there with her in the scene. And... <laughs> Solnit's friend is keep saying to the guy, that's her book. She wrote <laughs> that book <laughs> to the guy. And the guy just keeps blustering on. And eventually she, the friend says, she wrote that book. This woman here, she wrote the book you're talking about telling her to read. And, and so it's, it's a lot about that, uh, you know. Um, so and it, and it intersects with other things, of course, uh, uh, this, this piece, I think. Um, but it has a lot of those overlapping concerns we've been talking about uh, uh, throughout this kind of kind of chat, you know, and um, the middleman and the cargo that has to do with the Black Atlantic, and so does uh, the men without skin, which is what Tony Morrison calls the people who run the slave ship in Beloved. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, which I find difficult to talk about. Um, yeah, yeah. So, uh, so there's lots here, and there, yes. Yeah, so there's hopefully some things that are, are funny, but again, rubbing up against things that are, are absolutely, yeah. So, so yeah. And I love the, that phrase too, the ends of the earth. There's something about those colloquialisms like old hat, the title of my last book that are just sort of magically 
bizarrely sort of complex, you know, <laughs> and the ends of the earth has that sort of resonance to me, you know, right, anyway. Yeah. Um, question for you about being an educator that just, you know, in our conversation. So do you find, I mean, they're in creative writing, so maybe they're already kind of on board, but do you find it tougher to, do you find young, any young men that are resisting some of these challenging ideas? Um, and, and, you know, young men of this generation, some of them may not feel particularly privileged as individuals. Do you know what I mean? And, and it may be very hard for them as individuals because they may be working class. You know, they may have all sorts of different family structures. So they may not, they just may not be open or receptive to some of those questions. Have you, what's your experience been with that? Which questions, which questions and observations do you mean, Stephen? I mean, the ones about privilege, like, you know, the, the kind of question of privilege of, you know, um, masculinity as like, ultimately, if you think about it in many ways, the top privilege, right? That's the, the, the pinnacle of privilege or is whiteness the pinnacle of privilege? I'm not sure which one is really um, the, the top. There's a whole matrix of, you know, multidimensional matrix of privileges. And, um, but I'm thinking of that particular one of maleness and whiteness, I guess, really. Uh, yeah, I, I think people of all ages are resistant to that. Um, and I've met lots of young people, lots of young men uh, over the years um, who have had resistance to that. But I've, I think I've met just as many or probably more young men uh, who say to me things like, I, I hear what people are saying and I want to help. <laughs> what do I do? Give mm. me some advice. Um, one of the things I've said to those, those young folks over the years, if they're in a position that most of us would see as a privileged position with all the complexities of that, because I'm not, you know, um, people from where the, the sort of people with whom I grew up would find the idea of talking about privilege really annoying, I think. Um, and, the, and, uh, especially cause people have had hard luck and, and people have had a difficult time. So I think some people react to that by thinking that you mean they haven't had a hard time. Um, so the students that don't do that, the ones who say, who see what I, lots of people are talking about, I've often said, you know, when you, they're say they're male, straight and cisgender and white, I tell them they live in the castle and that they should open the damned drawbridge, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, that's a great analogy and, uh, and that other people are fighting to get inside. And one of the things they can do is open the door. Um, how that exactly actually functions is of course, really complicated and difficult. Um, but I think earlier you were talking about listening and I think that there's something to do. There's something about listening or, or sort of stopping and pausing and reflecting that has to do with that. So, um, I mean, I hear, uh, people constantly complaining about young people. Uh, um, and this is old news. People have been doing this yeah. for centuries and it's such bullshit. Like young people are energetic and hopeful and will improve the world. Um, so this idea that they're self-indulgent and lazy because they want to be on Snapchat all day is just, it's just a ridiculous myopia we've seen so many times. So I'm generally very hopeful about, about people, uh, that young people, um, about their attempts to politicize and, and be active and, and look for better ways to do things. So, and not let people get away with the stuff they used to get away with. So, that's sort of a roundabout way of answering the question, I think. No, no, it's a great way. Yeah. 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 No, it would be really tough as a, as a teacher to sort of have to, you know, you'd have to be very patient and careful in how, you, again, you listened and then played back and sort of worked with someone. Yeah. That, you know? Yeah. I have noticed in recent years, for example, uh, as a, as a college university instructor, you get course evaluations. And I have noticed sometimes on course evaluations, students say that a I'm, you know, too feminist or whatever. Um, and I, I mean, I don't like that. I, I'm not, I want everybody to get as much as good stuff as possible out of every moment of every class I have. So I find it difficult, even if the person is so obviously not a very nice person, I, I take it personally when they, <laughs> they don't get something, which is, you know, not good, you know, I shouldn't be doing that. But 
But uh, that has been something that's been interesting in the last few years, especially with the rise of populism. Yeah, People are emboldened to declare things that they, I think lots of people have always thought, but didn't feel they were allowed to say in public. Um, and I don't know what the solution to that is, but it's an interesting thing that I've seen a lot um, yeah. in, in recent years. Uh, so, yeah, that's a, it's all a difficult kind of uh, tangled, complicated problem. Uh, and the, the older I've gotten, and I've said this elsewhere, the older I've gotten, I think the most important, I, I increasingly think the most important thing for me as a, as someone who's trying to be a teacher is sort of twofold. And one of the things is self-awareness for me and other people, but also a sort of a spirit of kindness. Mm. And I mean, it sounds kind of cheesy, but I think that those two are sort of, for me, twin, twin poles of a good pedagogy. And if I can hmm. those someday, I think that would be good. Uh, wow. So that's what I'm trying to think about. Well, I'm going to try to recommend any grandchildren I ever have are going to go to Trent. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Whether or not I follow through with all that stuff remains to be seen. But yeah, you might turn into the old curmudgeon, right? In his sort of like um, leather patched... Um, tweed jacket and you know gray hair and uh, unkempt beard which of course no one can see that you don't have at all but um, <laughs> yeah <laughs> time changes us yeah um so let's close on the closing poem uh okay. what we meant and you know i'd like you to read maybe a few lines from it if you can and then you know i will later just read a, a really striking ending phrase like I mean it's a very interesting way in, in that this poem concentrates the power of the rest of the work in those closing lines which are like a lot of the book these open um, you know non-assertive lines but they're open you know and, and they're sort of subject to your own, bring your own experience to it, which I think is a huge, important factor in everything we've been talking about. But maybe you can just sort of leap into it a little bit. Sure. Uh, I'll read the beginning of it, Stephen. Sure. Okay. Uh, I should say, too, this poem is for uh, uh, Matthew Sapruder, the American poet. Um, and I sort of rip off a couple of his lines from his book, Why Poetry. And one of the things he says in Why Poetry talks about trying to use language that's language lots of people can access and understand, not necessarily the syntax or the ideas, but the language itself. The language isn't a sort of closed door. So that's one thing he's talking about. And somewhere in this poem, we were talking about this before we started, somewhere in this poem, I also rip off the title of a Carolyn Forche book. So oh, yeah. if I bump into either of those, that's, you know, I've acknowledged them now. So uh, what we meant last night, after setting a last minute bag of trash into the can deposited already at the curb, I stretched out on the cracked asphalt of our driveway. It was dark out, and up there, the same clouds and stars paraded that always do. You're talking about them now, quoting a psychologist who has been noting that they're always present, just hidden behind glaring sunshine. Can that fact be the one that saves us? And you're telling me this in writing. Here, in my hands, is your new book. I brush the overhead tree's red dust from the pages, but the red dust turns out to be some bug whose body is now smeared across this paragraph talking about war and environmental destruction. You tell me there are no big solutions coming. This is disappointing and troubling, but it may also be a relief. Are these things true only in the country between us? And there's that, there's that title. Yeah. So... And this one, I mean, for a long time, this poem had the same title as the book has. Um, so, uh, and it was always the closing poem. Um, so, uh, and the the title itself of the of the entire book uh, is something I know that you had sent me a note about. Um, and uh, the title of the book is called "It Doesn't Matter What We Meant." And uh, like so much else in the in the book, it's a sort of hypothesis. Uh, it's a it's a proposition, um, a provocation, I guess, a testing ground. I don't know if it's true, <laughs> uh -huh. and, and, I, and it's so declarative. It's it can be read to mean I know this is true, 
And, uh, and I had a long chat with my editor about this, uh, and we talked about it quite a lot, and I eventually decided to keep it. But I'm uncomfortable with the title in some ways, hmm. because uh, the way that the stress falls, for me, changes what it is. Like the word matter, um, what you're talking about there, the word we, who is included and excluded mm-hmm, in that. Mm-hmm. Uh, this idea of intention, maybe intention does matter, right? But at the same time, you know, old cliches about actions being loud and comparison to intentions. And I think all that's true too. And then uh, uh, excuses get in the way by claiming to have meant something else and communication problems. And so all of this kind of was wrapped up. And, uh, and, and so that final poem that ends with the title of the book, right. Um, Is, is also thinking, thinking through that. What does it mean to, to mean something, <laughs> uh, how does it count morally? Uh, how do you measure that against what what folks actually do? Uh, how do we sort of evaluate that stuff? And 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 again, I guess it's like you've been saying it's it's an open it's an open question in many ways, um, uh, and and uh, hopefully is speaking to possibility and inviting people who might pick the book up to think about that set of problems. Yeah, and I, I think it's a title that resonates with other titles I've seen. Like a, a friend of mine from the U.S. has a book called uh, "No Nobody Leaves the World Unhurt," oh, yeah. which is a beautiful book by a fellow named John Foy. Um, that actually you might find really interesting if you haven't come across it. It's got some similar sort of language acts in play, where like there's different voices, different tones. Like there's one poem about, uh, and he, you know, he is. And, you know, an American of, of a certain age, but just inquiring into the nature of violence and war, where just like sort of very violent war images are just put out in very matter of fact ways, like but very dryly, you know, um, to emphasize how desensitized we are to the reality of the violence and how the violence can't really be approached with the language very effectively at all, you know? Um, So I think titles like that, that's like you said, like, I guess if that, you know, the Pruder had brought that up in that book, you know, that idea of the language being, you know, open in the sense of like understandable to people, but that the impact of the statement is much, much wider, you know, and, and like you said, you want to focus on, almost the etymology of every word in that statement because well there's you know it opens up it goes into multiple directions it's not a clo- it's actually it's it's said in a closed way it's said as a fact but what is the fact you know that is so it's I, I i really i really liked it and i also have to say i loved the preceding little stanza which is this if you don't mind can we ever really hold a body's blueprint a trash collector's headline, any early Venus resting on its bare galactic blade. I thought that was just beautiful. I didn't really understand it terribly well. And I've been trying, I've been working on it. And I didn't know whether there were specific directions you wanted to go in with it. Like the body's blueprint, did you mean DNA? I was thinking about that I was thinking, you know, what did you mean by that? Um, and that that trash collector's headline is very interesting. Like, is what is what is what is it? Do you mind if I ask you what you meant by those things? <laughs> it doesn't. It doesn't matter what what I meant. Uh, <laughs> um, so I have to get that in. Uh, so the body's blueprint is uh, is. Um, I'm thinking partly of a heavenly body um, and uh, I'm tying up maybe some of the concerns throughout the book about astronomy um, and astrophysics. Cause there's lots of stuff about yeah. outer space and Voyager one and galactic speeds and all that stuff. Um, so, uh, but yes, you're also right. DNA and uh, what we're meant to do, what we have to do, what fate does for us. Um, can we really depend on that stuff? Should we give up about it? That's that line. Um, the trash collector's headline, the trash collector comes back to the opening image where of the poem where I'm, I'm saying I'm putting a bag of garbage out by the curb 
and somebody else is going to come and take it away somewhere. And this this weird intimate sort of sharing that we depend on. And then the headline is one of the palm reading lines. Um, so, but it's also, of course, a newspaper headline. Um, and then uh, early Venus is uh, is one of the earliest, the first stars you see at night at a certain time of year. Um, and all the things that are associated with Venus as a as a myth and also as a as a place, uh, a planet, incredibly out there, <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, is also I hopefully also there. And it's it's resting on a bare galactic blade, I think, because you're seeing it, but you're seeing it, you know, all the stuff that we know about astrophysics, about how it's old light and people are stardust and all that stuff uh, is is wondrous and miraculous to me and uh, operates to me at the same level of all other storytelling uh, or mythology or folklore um, in that it you have to have a certain system of faith to believe in astrophysics, right? Unless you're an astrophysicist, you know, I don't, <laughs> I don't understand that stuff. So I take it on faith that it's accurate and believe it. So it's an interesting set of problems. Also, I have to say, um, those three lines, I worked to death and it took a really long time to finally give up on those lines. So I'm, wow. uh, I'm really chuffed to hear that they did something for you. <laughs> As always, I want to thank you for listening and for supporting authors and booksellers through these difficult times. Our official bookseller is Perfect Books on Elgin, and I know wherever you are right now, there's an independent bookseller nearby who would be more than happy to sell you some great poetry. If you enjoy the podcast or any of our virtual programming, please consider making a charitable donation. I want to thank the Ottawa Public Library, the Government of Canada, the Government of Ontario, the City of Ottawa, the Ontario Arts Council, the Canada Council for the Arts, Carleton University, and CBC for their ongoing support. This podcast is produced by Aaron Flynn, original music and sound engineering by Mike Dubay. Kira Harris is our program director, and I'm Sean Wilson. Thank you for listening.